0: So we've been going through the book of James, and we took a break on it for a couple of weeks. First we had the missionary, and then we had Father's Day. So I'm going to do a bit of a recap this morning Uh, for those of you that may have forgotten or for our visitors today. uh, So the book of James was written by James, obviously, Um, and the James that it's talking about there is uh, James, the brother of Jesus and so this is someone who was very close to jesus both growing up and later during uh... his ministry he didn't believe that he was the messiah at first uh... but he was among the brethren when uh, on the day of pentecost so he was he was be- a believer by that at that point and he was a very strong believer uh... the book of james is believed is believed to be the first book of the new testament that was written down uh... so this is before all the gospels were written The book of James was written before those Uh, so a lot of things that James says actually very closely line up with the things that Jesus says so you can actually line up the book of James with uh, the Sermon on the Mount and they're very close together Uh, so James is really someone uh, a person of wisdom uh, and he gives some pretty scathing uh, rebuke of the early churches at the time and so uh, this is a general epistle so it is written to multiple churches multiple people Uh, it's not written to one specific group Um, it's believed to be written to the Hebrews that were scattered abroad Um, so these are people in various places that were under persecution um, and they were turning out a lot of them to be just like the people that were persecuting them Uh, and James points this out uh, various times throughout his book And so the main purpose of him writing this book is to get people to actually walk a Christian life, not just to claim they're Christian, not just to say, hey, I'm a Christian. I go on Sundays. He actually wants people to live that out in their lives. Um, So now he's coming. We're we're coming to chapter four now. And what he writes chapter four about really is how to be close to God, how to get close to God. Uh, and he does this with three different, uh, main points that he has. Uh, he starts off with really how do you push God away? So in order to know how to get close to God, you first have to know to, uh, how you push God away? Uh, then he talks about how to draw nearer to God. Uh, then he talks about the thing that ties those two together, which is humility, Uh, or the lack thereof. So if you lack humility, you push God away. If you have humility, you draw close to God. So let's go ahead and pray before we open up God's Word. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Uh, I thank you for uh, the writers that you inspired uh, to give your Word to us, Um, and I pray, Lord, that uh, we would be able to absorb what you have to teach us this morning, and you keep our hearts and our minds open to that in jesus name i pray amen Amen. so first what we're going to look at this morning is how do we push god away how do this is something that we all do so it's not how to push god away it is how do we push god away right so how do we push god away well first uh we push god away with our fleshly desires This is in uh, James chapter four, verses one through three. So we push God away with our own fleshly desires. He starts here in verse one. He says, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do not they come from your desires for pleasure that war your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive, because you ask amiss. That you may spend it on your pleasures. So the first, so how do our fleshly desires push God away? Well, first it, it shows us in verse one that uh, our fleshly desires cause wars and fightings that pushes God away. Wars and fightings. So. Uh, John D. Rockefeller was famous for saying, you know, uh, that he says, how do you, what, how much money would make a man happy? And he said, one more dollar, right? And this drove John Rockefeller to overtake many other businesses. I mean, he became one of the wealthiest men in America at his time. Uh, He was, at that time, it was a millionaire, right? Uh, That was one of the wealthiest men in America. now. You know we have numbers that are much larger than that but at this time it was a lot less money to deal with but he would overtake people he put other people down he got into uh trade wars with other people he did all kinds of things for his own desires and it was never enough it was never enough this shows also in this verse our unsatisfied longings uh in verse two he says, you lust and do not have. So uh, we as men are always lusting after things that we don't have. And we will never have enough to satisfy our longings. Just like Rockefeller, he's one more dollar. One more. What, what, how much is enough to make me happy? Just one more dollar. Always just one more dollar. And then he says again, you fight and war. He says... You do not have because you do not ask so this is again talking about uh, our unsatisfied longings that it also brings up meaningless prayers you see when we are doing things based off of our own fleshly desires our prayers are meaningless to god you see first of all we when we're seeking after the things that we want that we want we don't ask God we think we're we can obtain it but then he says so he says you do not have because you don't ask okay first of all you don't ask right then he says you ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures so first of all we don't ask then second of all we when we do ask we ask for things that are selfish we ask for things for ourselves for our own pleasures so our fleshly desires these things actively push God away from us if we are seeking after things for ourselves we're creating wars and fightings, and all of that stuff just pushes God away the next thing that pushes God away from us is friendship with with the world this is in verse 4 James says, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? So it makes you an enemy of God if you are a friend of the world. He says, Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So James restates that being at enmity with God. Notice in this first first part of this verse, He calls them adulterers and adulteresses. Adulterers and adulteresses. See, if we're friends of the world, we are cheating on God. This is what Israel did. This is why God divorced Israel. It's because they were worshiping other false gods. Now, we talked about this a little bit last week on Father's Day, the, the false gods of America, right? The TV, the sports, all of that stuff, all of the things that we worship, all of our stuff, right? We're cheating on God if we put that stuff as the most important thing in our lives. Now remember, friendship with the world is enmity with God. It puts us at odds with God. It means if we are taking the world side, God is directly opposed to the world. So if we are taking the world side, we are putting ourselves on the other side. God's not putting us on the other side. We put ourselves there. We are at enmity with God. So our fleshly desires, our friendship with the world. the last thing that really pushes God away and this kind of encompasses all of that is our pride in verses five to six it talks about our pride versus God's grace see those are two very opposite things constantly warring with each other inside every man James 4 5 to 6 says or do you think that scripture says in vain The spirit who dwells in you, uh, sorry, who dwells in us yearns jealousy, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So first look at verse five here. The spirit is jealous over us. See, God doesn't want us to have any other gods before him right? God's jealous over us. We need to be worshiping God as the center of our lives. You know, I I love my wife, but if I put my wife over God, then I'm sinning there. And actually, ultimately, I will end up having problems with my wife in that situation. You see, in a marriage relationship, you both have to put God As the center of your world and then you'll both get closer together because you're both striving towards the same goal the Spirit is jealous over us jealous over our time jealous over what takes place what what takes the throne of our heart we have to give everything to God Notice in the first part of verse 6, he says, but he gives more grace. So God's grace is available to us. God's grace is always available. But our pride gets in the way of taking God's grace sometimes. Then the second part of verse 6, we see that God resists the proud. So if you have pride, if you're saying, hey, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, I don't need God. God will actually resist you when you pray to him. That's a sad fact. We have to have humble hearts when we come to God. And then it says in this last part of this verse, but gives grace to the humble. See, James spells it out here for us. He literally gives us a step-by-step guide of how to push God away and how to get close to God. At the very end of verse 6, he says, but gives grace to the humble. And now he is going to make a transition to how to draw near to God. See, that's the first clue of how to get close to God. Humble yourself. Humble yourself. So how do we get close to God? Uh, this is in chapter 4, verses 7 to 10. He says, submit to God and resist the devil. He's in verse 7, it says, therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. This, word, this Greek word for submit, it's a military term. It means to place oneself under Or to obey it's literally understanding that whoever you are submitting to has authority over you like an officer you see we must first realize before we do anything else that God is above us God is in command over us so we have to submit He says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now, too many people will quote just that half of the verse. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's a really nice thing to think, but uh, sorry, you're not strong enough to resist the devil. We have to remember that full verse there. Submit to God, then resist the devil and he will flee from you. You see, the devil's not really fleeing from you. He's fleeing from the one that you were submitting to. Submit to God first, then resist the devil. To resist means to withstand or to hold one's ground. It means that you are not moving when the devil is coming at you. It means to oppose. See, we have to be against the devil. We have to be against the things of the world in order to be on God's side. Notice the promise that is given. You see, God promises this here. If you submit to him and resist the devil, both of those together, the devil will flee from you. We have to resist our temptations. In verse 8, this is one of the most famous verses uh, in this passage. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. This is in the first part of verse 8. He says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And then he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify you, your hearts, you double-minded. So verse. let's break down that first half of that verse. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you that's again a promise there but it's a promise with a condition see if you want God to draw near to you you first have to take those steps in getting close to him this reminds me of when Jesus is healing at the pools of Bethesda Uh, this is one of the few instances where Jesus doesn't actually make physical contact with the man that he's healing uh he sees this man who's been laying in a long for a long time in the state that he's in and jesus asks the man he says do you want to be healed and the man comes up with all these excuses of why he can't get in the pool and he doesn't realize that jesus is standing right there in front of him his 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 savior is standing right there in front of him but then jesus says to the man jesus doesn't." go down and grab the man and lift him up he says arise take up your bed and walk jesus simply tells the man to get up you see that man had to make a choice was he going to stay there lying in his condition or was he going to take jesus's advice and get up and walk that man had to do something first he had to have the will to get up so, we have to first take those steps in getting close to God. And the closer we get to God, God will get closer to us. That is the promise there. Now, the other part of this verse he says, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double minded. So, he gives us a command here. James is saying this. He says, Cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. Now, it literally tells people to clean their hands, the symbolic washing. Now, this is obviously a reference to the tabernacle and temple worship, where when the Jews would go in, they would always wash their hands first. And what this means to us here is we need to be clean. From things before we approach God but he doesn't just stop at cleaning on the outside he says cleanse your hands you sinners and purify your hearts you double-minded so the Pharisees at that time were all about things that were on the outside all about cleaning the outside Jesus a lot of times taught about the heart it's not just about the outside it's about what's on the inside you say cleanse your hands and purify your hearts if you think about it if we are rotten from the inside we can scrub our skin all we want but it's never going to be enough because you are rotten from the inside is always going can you imagine cleaning dirt off your hands and just there always being more dirt there never going away never getting clean that's because if your heart is dirty it's coming from the inside it's nothing that's happening to you from the outside so to purify here means to remove any defilement remove any defilement so you can't Just clean the outside, but you have to clean the inside as well. You see, you can wash your hands and clean the outside, and you can look good to everyone else. But to God, if you haven't purified your heart, your heart's still wicked. You're still filthy. Then he addresses the double-minded. He talks about uh, the double-minded a lot in his book uh we're talking about the tongue uh where you know if you have a double-minded tongue where people were cursing uh cursing man and blessing god at the same time with the same mouth you can't do it james speaks against being double-minded a lot in his book he addresses it again here purify your hearts you double-minded you see We have to be concerned with pleasing God with both our actions, our hands, what we do in this life, but also our hearts. Our hearts have to be in the right place when we're serving God. Now James gets to be really a a bit of a downer here. James wants us to be miserable about our sin. We should be miserable about our sin. This is verse 9. It says in James 4, verse 9, Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. You see, there there were some men that I knew when I was younger that thought that hell was a party. They thought hell was going to be an awesome place. They would joke about it. What James is talking about here is not that we should always be sad. He's talking to people that were putting up their sin and laughing about it. Making the sin be something to be glorified. Taking joy in their sin. There are people like this in the world today. He says that we should lament and mourn and weep over these things this literally means to be miserable james is commanding us to be miserable over our sin lamenting is a feeling this is how we should feel because of our sin it should make us again miserable not simply because we did something wrong but it hinders us from getting close to God. You see, if we're laughing about our sin, we're being joyful about that. That hinders us from getting close to God. Sin hinders us from getting close to God. So we should be sad over it for that fact. This, these words, all three of these words basically mean the same thing. They're three different Greek words, but they... Basically, have the same definition. So, in other words, James is say every, using every known Greek word to describe the same thing, and he puts it here: lament and mourn and weep. These words are used to describe how we feel when someone dies. So, the we the way that we should feel about our sin is the way that we should feel is the way that we feel. When someone close to us dies because when we sin we are literally killing our relationship with God now obviously we have forgiveness and we can always ask for forgiveness and that brings us closer but it doesn't change the fact that God abhors our sin he loves us but he hates our sin It's sad to think that people laugh over their sin. When we have sinned against God, we should set aside our laughter and we should weep and and mourn and lament over what we have done. Our sin should be so heavy on us that it should push down our joy. So, you want to know how to get close to God? Well, We have to humble ourselves. We have to ask Him for forgiveness of these things. We have to not be proud over our sin, over the things that we are doing. Humility in verses, uh, sorry, chapter 4, verses 10 to 17. This is what ties all of this scripture that we just read together. We must humble ourselves. James chapter 4 verse 10 says this. It says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. You see, we can't have joy over our sin. We can't have laughter over the things that we have done wrong. But if we humble ourselves and we mourn and lament, we do all of those things, it says he will lift you up. See, we, it, the word humble, it means to make low. And if we make ourselves low in the sight of God, again, he will lift us up. Humility is the key to this entire passage. Without humility, nothing else with God is possible. But he promises to lift us up if we have it. Now, James then moves on and he describes what the lack of humility looks like. First, it's treating our brethren poorly. Treating our brethren poorly in verses 11 and 12. Now, this is talking about saved people. Now, he's... Directing this at people that are saved people that are supposed to be representing Christ in their lives And he says in verse 11 do not speak evil of one another Brethren he who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law But if you judge the law You are not a doer of the law But a judge, there is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? So he brings up three important things in this part of this passage. First, speaking evil of our brethren. He says do not speak evil of one another and then he says he talks about judging our brethren so first he brings up speaking evil right that's that's you know the back talking that's all of the you know when we we talk behind each other's back or we say mean things to one another speaking evil that's literally speaking evil at a person uh, there's no other way to explain that saying bad things about someone about a brother. He says, if you do this, you become a judge of your brother. So by inherently saying something bad about someone, you are saying that you are better than that person when you're not. We're all sinners. So then he says, so we become not a doer of the law so we're not just trying to follow it anymore but we become a judge we become a judge in this situation so when we become a judge we're not only putting ourselves over the person that we're judging but we are putting ourselves above god in that situation says there is one lawgiver who is able to save and destroy so we do not have the right to judge others in this way that's what James is getting at here so uh, so lacking humility shows in our treatment of our brothers so if we're speaking evil and we're judging one another that shows a lack of humility on our part remember if we, we show pride God resists the proud This also shows in losing sight of God's will. This is verses 13 to 16. He says in chapter 4, verses 13 to 16, he says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, and buy and sell and make a profit. Now, that doesn't sound that bad. I mean, we're going to go to a city, we're going to buy and sell some stuff, and we're going to make a profit. James moves on here. He says, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. So you're making all these plans about tomorrow. You haven't included God. He says, you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Then James gives some advice. He says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. So we have to include God in our plans. He says, then he says, but now you boast in your arrogance. And then he says, all such boasting is evil. So we're going to brag about, okay, we're going to go to this city and we're going to buy and sell some things and we're going to make a profit. All about us. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. We're going to do this tomorrow. We know what's going to happen tomorrow. We haven't included God in our plans at all. That boasting, that is boasting of yourself. That's putting yourself up. He says that's evil. So it gives a sense of bragging about ourselves. Not considering how short our lives are. Says our lives are but a vapor, right? We're here and then we're gone, and it shows how little control we actually have. So we we don't have control over our lives. We have to face that. Now we have the free will to choose God or to not choose God, but God is ultimately in control of everything that happens. So we must always consider God's will in our plans. Now, this does not mean that we don't plan in our lives. Please plan for the future. What James is talking about here is planning, not considering God. So when we plan for our futures, we need to consider God. We need to go, God, I want to do your will in my life. What, how should I plan thusly? We should always include prayer in our planning. Talk to God about it. Consult with God. That's how we should plan in our lives. So, in conclusion, I'll get to that last verse in just a moment. How do we get close to God? Well, if you want to push God away, simply be filled with pride. All of those negative things, those all stem off of pride. Pride. Now, if you want to draw close to God, you do the opposite. You humble yourself. And you draw near to him, and it says he will draw near to you. Now, I want to look at that last verse there, because it's kind of interesting. It seemingly doesn't fit with the rest of the passage. This is what's known as the sin of omission, right? So, a sin because you didn't do what was right. So he says, therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Now, why is this with this passage here? Well, James is basically saying, after I've told you all of these things, you know now what to do. He said, you, you don't have the excuse of ignorance here. So if you know to do good and you do not do it, so if you know to get close to God, you know to humble yourself, and you don't do it, that's sin. In the broader context, this can apply to many different things in our lives. We know When we know what's right to do, and we don't do it, that is still sin. It's just as bad as doing something wrong. So, not doing the right thing when you know to do it is just as bad as doing something wrong. That is a sin of omission. So, in concluding, as the pianist and the song leader come, if you're saved, if you're here and you're saved this morning, and you maybe have pushed God away in your life, there's a simple thing that you can do to get back to him uh... i I believe it's first john one nine uh... that says uh... that if we ask for forgiveness of our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness now i may have butchered that a little bit but that's basically what the verse says there so if you are pushing god away in your life there's only one thing that you have to do that's all you have all you have to do is pray and ask him to forgive you Then. That relationship gets mended. It says God is faithful and just to forgive you your sins. That means it would be wrong for God to not forgive you. You know that? If we ask for forgiveness and God doesn't forgive, which he always does, it would be wrong for him not to do that. Because Jesus already died for our sins. It's already paid for. So God will always forgive you when you ask.